You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I want to thank the uh, girls, uh, octet plus two or three, <laughs> I don't know exactly what the Latin is for 12, but uh, that was, that's a nice addition. I think that's obvious. No, he's a nice group. <laughs> I think we ought to have them in chapel more often, Dr. Fisher. I'd like to suggest next Tuesday the whole thing for the Salvation Army. Let me um, direct your attention to one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, if I might do that, in the King James Version, St. Luke, first chapter, starting with the 68th verse, going to the 75th, the prophecy of Zechariah, one of the great promises in the Bible, as I say, one of the most beautiful passages, I think, in the English language. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, excuse me, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And those last two verses particularly, the last bit there, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Those three lines are the ones that I want to dilate upon this morning. When you approach, when one approaches this dias sanctified by so many august and elegant speakers in the past over many years, there is a very strong temptation almost, but not fortunately for you, quite overpowering, to be clever, to be profound, original. But I thought about this and prayed about this chapel for a long time, beginning, in fact, last fall, when I first knew, as Dr. Kaiser mentioned, that we all learned about the schedule last fall, set out for the year as much as Dr. Fisher can do that for the convenience of the speakers. So I knew last September that I would be speaking sometime winter quarter. I began to think about it and pray about it. And I was put under conviction that very often the desire to be profound and original and, uh, quote, clever, unquote, is not far removed from the desire to be ironic. And to my own mind, excessive irony is condescending. It's patronizing to people to be uh, clever and convoluted at their expense. And I was further put under an even stronger conviction. I was led in another whole direction. And that is to speak very simply from the heart about a very simple thing, or some very simple things. But let me, let me begin at the beginning. The beginning of religion is conviction. And conviction has two parts. I know I'm going from the very start, and I know this is simple. My whole message is going to be simple, I hope. It would be, I would be grieved if I lost one of you for one moment. I don't mean your attention. I mean your ability to understand. You, your attention is free to wander <laughs> as, you, as you allow it least in the space of this room, or in imagination, wherever it wants to go. But I would not want for you to be confused. So I'm starting very simply, right where I'm starting, in my own experience, or did. And that is that conviction consists of two parts. One part is the recognition of sin. And we get that partly by knowing our own hearts, and partly by knowing history, on the one hand. Partly knowing what human nature is capable of, because we are capable of it, as I say, at least in our imagination. 
and we know from history what human beings collectively are capable of, and it might summarize the point by saying there's nothing they're not capable of acting uh, in concert, nothing. There's nothing too monstrous or to pray for them to do acting in concert. Well, the second part of conviction is faith. A recognition of a need, first part. Second part is in faith appropriating the solution, and that solution is that the hope of the world and the hope of our redemption and the hope of our individual salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is the beginning of religion, and conviction leads to conversion. Now, that is as far as, let us say, most Christian evangelism, most Christian preaching, most Christian doctrine goes, and in that, we would be here at Ashbury, and in the Wesleyan tradition, we would share that in common with all Orthodox Christians. That is the common body of Orthodox Christianity, that that is the beginning of religion, brings you through conviction to conversion. That is the beginning, but that is not the end of religion. That is not the end in the sense that is not its purpose. The purpose of religion lies in the future. Now, one of the things that I've been much struck by in my own experience, and one of the things I've been much struck by in my sharing collective experiences here and historically with other groups and other denominations, has been a very strong tendency, amounting again almost, but fortunately not quite, to an overwhelming power of temptation to rest static. But if religion is anything, it is not static. It is not so much that we are what we are saved from that really matters. It is what we are saved for. Now, what we were saved from mattered then. Don't misunderstand me. But it does not matter so much now. One way of looking at that is that there's not much virtue in a negative uh, testimony. People are not generally much interested in what you no longer do and why you think it's wrong. They are much more interested in what you propose to do now with your new faith in Jesus Christ. Religion cannot be static. It can be lots of things, but it cannot be static. I was reminded of the tendency to rest easy in a fortress of, of static accomplishment by a shopping expedition I had last week. I love to shop, and I especially love to shop for food. My little cart. I go up and down the aisles. I get all the good things, potato chips and green olives and Kool-Aid and breadsticks and cheese nibbles and yogurt. Okay, I just love it. Stuck it. Well, I, my eye fell one day last week on a bottle of A1 sauce. Oh, say, says I, A1 sauce. I've seen that advertised on television. And among the numerous bottles of useless condiments in my house, I had not yet added to my collection A1 sauce. <laughs> so I purchased a bottle of A1 sauce. And I served it to some people. Mixed it in with a sauce and served it to some people. Well, one day later than that, later in the week, I was idling around the kitchen, something was cooking, and I decided I'd read the bottle of A1 sauce, read the label. And it's illustrative of what happens to our Christian faith, A1 sauce. And on the side, it says, awarded eight or six gold medals at international expositions. Oh, my heart soared. A prize-winning substance here. And I didn't even know it. And it gave the dates. Paris. Said, I can't recall what they were, but let's just say it was 1867. I think this is right, 1867 and 1880. Then it said London, 1862, 1879, my heart is sinking at this, 1889, and finally the last date, 1900. I was thunderstruck. I had poured a brown spicy liquid of who knows what composition into sauce, which I'd served to my guileless friends, and the last time it was inspected was 1900. <laughs> Do you know what the food standards in the world were like in 1900? <laughs> I felt like Lucretia Borgia poisoned my friends at a banquet. 
Well, I sometimes think that we have a tendency to go marching forth into a bored world wearing signs that say A1 Religion 1900 or A1 Religion 1950 or A1 Religion 1971 or A1 Religion September of 1981 or, or December of 1981 or January the 10th of 1982. Our religion cannot be static. It must be movement. It must be progressive. And to what end, to what purpose does it move? It moves to the end of holiness. That is its purpose. And that is the great insight that John Wesley in the Wesleyan tradition added to the body of Orthodox, or perhaps returned, would be more accurate, returned to the body of Orthodox theology. That our religion, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, tends to the end, leads us to the end, goes in the direction of holiness. And holiness is a great work of grace, a wonderful, incomprehensible work of grace, which gives us the faith and the power, and which is drawn by and encourages and strengthens the desire to live according to the great commandment, that we should love God in all things and our neighbor as ourselves. Gives us faith, gives us power, gives us a desire, or in response to that desire as well, and a wonderful circular process in which our free will plays a major role. But what is holiness, pray? Well, there we come to where I want to speak very simply this morning, right directly from my own heart and right directly from my own experience, and I think from the experience and from the heart of many of my friends and from the great devotional literature that uh, has been my pleasure to read and from the great sermons that I've heard in this very chapel and other places as well. What is holiness? There is debate on the doctrine of holiness. It's not, nothing needs to concern you on this point. I mean, it isn't debate that's just proved it. But there are all kinds of honest, sanctified differences of opinion as to what holiness is, what kind of work it involves, how God's uh, will relates with our will, what the grace actually does in our heart, what the great actually does in our dis- uh, grace actually does in our disposition. Well, that's all true. Holiness is many things to many people. But at bottom, you throw it into a retort, that's for our chemistry friends, you throw it into a retort and you boil it down, it's got to come out some kind of practical, obvious change in our life. We've got to come out of this experience of holiness in some ways markedly different from before we went into it. Holiness may be many things, it is many things, but at bottom it has got to be a practical life-changing experience. Now I'm very interested in this kind of thing because I wonder how do we do it? How do we do holiness? In Great Britain, people use the word or the verb do differently from how we do. They do English, they do history, they do social work. Well, how do we do holiness? What exactly is involved in a holy life? What does the New Testament mean by holiness, by a holy life? That's what I want to talk about. I've always been interested in that kind of thing. I'm interested in social history. To me, it's not enough to say that in 1880, people travel at a more slow pace than they travel today. That is not enough to me. I want to know, and I want to explain to others, I think it makes it much more interesting and much more relevant, it enhances the virtue of the study of history, in other words, to know exactly what it meant to travel slowly, what it was like to get a horse out at 6 a.m., to connect to a buggy, to get in, go clip-clopping off at three miles an hour. Those little details are very interesting to me, and I think they add something to the study of history. Well, it's the little details of holiness that have interested me in the last couple of months. And it's the little details of holiness, how we do it, how we live it, that God has laid on my heart to share with you this morning. And I think these little things are what the New Testament means by holy living. I think if we think about this, and if we pray about this, and if we study this, this has been my experience in any case, I shouldn't make it so general, but it's been my experience that the longer I think and pray and study holiness, the more certain I am that the range of things, 
the range of activities, the range of concerns, which will be transformed by God's Holy Spirit, becomes broader and broader and broader. So that at the very beginning, it's the gross and savage things that are purged. But as we get near the end of the process, as it culminates, as we walk closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and are more and more submissive to his spirit, more and more aware of his power and presence, the range of things that are transformed becomes more and more minute and more and more trivial and more and more mundane, more and more ordinary. I honestly believe that that is true. Thomas de Quincey wrote an essay one time in which he said that a man's moral degeneration begins with cold-blooded murder and it ends with bad manners. Well, I think a person's sanctification begins with the death of all that's really vicious and savage, and it ends with good manners. What are the little things of holiness? Well, the first of these little things of holiness, to my mind, is friendliness. I remember last September, speaking of September, last September, a girl whose name, I'm sorry, I can't recall, or I would give it to you. She, you you'll know who she is. She'll know who she was. It was just last September. She gave her testimony here, and she said, what a lovely experience it was to be walking around on campus and to have somebody smile at her, how that transformed her whole day. Well, a smile is a wonderful thing, no matter what it costs you to be friendly. And it does cost something to be friendly, to be really friendly, to be really concerned costs something. Whatever it costs you, it is a great boon to other people. It's a kind of a response from the world, a friendly response. It's an indication of some little concern. It's an indication of a warm disposition. It's indication of a desire to please. It's some response from the world, and everybody wants some response from the world. People are, are lonely. I think loneliness is a uh, major cause of malaise and tension and unhappiness here and everywhere. People want some response from the world, and you can give it. The first condition, I think, the first fruit, the first gift, the first product is friendliness. The second is good manners. Oh, how old-fashioned. The second is good manners. And what I mean by good manners is not necessarily etiquette. But good manners show all kinds of things. They show respect. They show respect of the young for the old, perfectly legitimate, for the uneducated for the educated, the down for the up, men for women. But they also show the other way around. They show concern from the up to the down, the educated to the not educated, the leaders to the led. It is a bond of union, is good manners. And we've lost it. It shows concern. May I help you? May I be of service? May I open the door? It shows concern, like a smile. In fact, here's a way of looking at good manners. How about saying good manners are an organized smile? And the fact that it's habitual is no great argument against it. At least it's in the right direction. Well, the third. Should I number things? Is it mechanical and clumsy to number things? The third, yes, yes. The third is patience. Now, I'm not referring here primarily, I, I will touch on it, but I'm not referring primarily to Patience in the sense of losing your patience if you have to wait. I'm not referring exclusively to uh, an inability to wait graciously in a time span. Although, if you think about it, impatience is a very unsubtle form of selfishness or self-centeredness. How else can you explain someone who gets in a line or gets in a traffic jam and resents the fact that other people are ahead of him or that his precious time, somehow it's a reflection of the idea that your time, your interest, is more important than the people around you. And that the fact that you have to wait is somehow an imposition, somehow a plot. If you take self-centeredness two steps beyond, it becomes paranoia. And I think that people who tend towards impatience, and here's one right here, uh, are, are very liable uh, to self-centeredness. And, to, uh, and if you let it go, if you indulge it, but that's not the kind of patience, impatience I'm talking about. It is, it's bad, and avoid it. But the kind of patience I'm talking about 
is patience in response to other people. Uh, it's what the, the scriptures call moderation, toleration, kindness. Now, in that connection, I want to say something, and I, I have to be very careful. I want to qualify my words because I don't want to be misunderstood, and hopefully not so far. Are you all with me so far? I think those who are awake, I mean. Those who are giving any attention, I think, are, are, are still with me. In my life here, the 12 years I've been hearing it before that, in fact, now to think about it, today is, uh, what, the 21st? Well, on the 23rd of January, this is of no interest to you, but on the 23rd of January, I will have been a Christian for 15 years. I was saved in January of 1967. But in that 15 years, I have gradually come, not so much to a conviction, because I wouldn't dignify it as a conviction. I have come to a recognition, and my experience supports this. It's not an absolute truth, but I think it's suggestive, that there are in this, in this world uh, a number of people who are annoying. And I don't mean they're just annoying to me, I mean they're annoying. Uh, very tedious, difficult people, creepy people. Tacky people, just tacky. But I know something about those people. Now, not all of them, it's not a universal truth as I say, but it's a suggestive, I think it's a generalization that's suggestive. And that is that I never knew one of them well, I never knew one of them well who was happy. I never knew one of those really creepy, tedious, annoying, awkward, disagreeable, unattractive people who was happy. I never knew one of them who was really beautiful or well-endowed, or who was popular, or who had a lot of talent, or who had to summarize, enjoyed a great deal of good fortune in this world. Now, it's not a universal truth, but generally that has been my experience, and generally that is your experience. If you think about the people who get on your nerves and you don't like being around, think how happy they are, and think what they've got to be happy about. That will help you to see them as the Lord Jesus Christ sees us. We draw distinctions between ourselves, you understand, that the Blessed Holy Spirit does not draw between ourselves and Him. We are all in a boat, all in a kind to Him, all lovable and worthy of His death on the cross. It's the distinctions we draw between ourselves based on these kinds of, of social awkwardness and tedious and attractiveness, which are not, not universally, but so often the result of bad luck, physical endowment, all kinds of misfortunes. They should, if anything, draw from us more patience and more sympathy and more love, not less. Patience is the third. The fourth is generosity. Now, I am not speaking here primarily of money. I very seldom speak of money in a religious sense. I don't want to say anything here that would be misinterpreted. I, I don't think money is of a primary concern in the spiritual atmosphere at all. I don't think it's something we should think much about or talk much about. I do think that excessive concern with money, uh, people who are very careful with their money, very concerned with acquiring more, but I think that's greed, my dears, and I think greed is a very dangerous sin. And I don't think you can take a sin and elevate it to a virtue by prefacing it with a praiseworthy adjective. Sin is sin, and greed is a sin, one of the seven deadly sins. To be preoccupied with money is to be preoccupied with the material, and to be preoccupied with yourself. But I'm not talking about money at all. Right, a little bit. I'm talking about being generous with yourself. I'm talking about being generous and giving and giving and giving again with your time, with your heart, with your attention. Now, when our Lord says that he wants us to give our life, he says those who would save their life would lose it. I think the emphasis ought to be not on the life, but on the your. I don't think, there's, I don't think it's possible. I know it's not possible. It is not possible. It's thinkable, but not possible. 
to have a Christian life without sacrifice. And if what you do, by way of being generous, does not cost you anything, you're not being generous at all. If what you give of yourself, be it merely money, and I emphasize the merely, the merely material, if, just speaking of that, or speaking of other things, talent and time and attention and love, if it costs you nothing, if it's no imposition, if it's no sacrifice, then you're not being generous. And generosity is a mark of holiness. Generosity is a mark of the sanctified spirit. Freely you have received, freely give. And the fifth, like five fingers on a hand, the fifth of these little things of holiness, to my mind, is humility. The great and precious virtue of humility. I think Christian humility must be the opposite of pride. If pride is thrusting yourself up the equal of God and putting your own arrogant will and ego and disposition against his, whether expressed in the Holy Scripture or whether he speaks to you through his blessed spirit, then humility is the opposite. Humility is a tender, yielding submissiveness to God's Holy Spirit in all things. And if pride is the father of sin, which it is, because it was Adam's sin, then humility must be the father of virtue, which it certainly is. Because all good things will flow from a yielding, submissive spirit to God, the Holy Spirit. And the longer you walk, and the more consciously you yield, the more that your life will show the end of the commandment. And your heart will reflect what Paul says to Timothy in the first chapter. He says that the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. Or put another way, a tender heart and a good conscience. Think of what a boon, two boons. A tender heart and a good conscience. And if you walk, and if you're tender, and if you're submissive, then will bestowed on you the great social gift, the great precious thing of thoughtfulness. Now, partly thoughtfulness is conditioned. It's partly uh, a reflection of your background, of your home life. No question about that. Like a taste for music is often that, or, or knowing which uh, knife and fork to use. It doesn't itself say a great deal. It's, it's desirable and attractive, like many aspects of education, but it's not in itself what I'm speaking of. Partly a product of home, but anyone, anyone can become thoughtful and tender. Because the kind of thoughtfulness I'm talking about is susceptibility, sensitivity, sensitivity, perhaps, it's a thing of the heart, as much as the mind, sensitivity to God's Holy Spirit and his leading. And you will know that you are moving in his direction and you are moving with him when nice things come into your head. Has this ever happened to you? A nice thing will come into your head. You will wish to say to someone a nice thing, but you don't do it. Now, I'll come back and talk about that a little bit later. But that's the kind of thoughtfulness. That thoughtfulness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. When a kind thing comes into your head, please, if you don't remember anything else I said, please remember this. In this kind of a community, if you want to say something nice to somebody, don't hold back. The capacity of a community to absorb niceness is infinite. You cannot produce too much niceness. You can certainly produce too much nastiness, just like that. But you cannot produce too much. People have an infinite capacity to hear nice things. Well, so these are the five little things of holiness. Pretty mundane. Pretty disappointing. Where are the world-shaking issues? What about world evangelism? What about missions? Well, what about them? <laughs> Let me just ask you a question. Do you think sensibly now, we're all friends here, do you think that a person could be sanctified, could call themselves filled or guided or in tune with or interested in or conversant with the existence of 
the Holy Spirit and be the opposite of any of those five things that I've just listed? Rude, impatient, greedy, intemperate, unfriendly, insensitive. Could a person be the opposite of any of those things that I've listed as the little things of holiness and be really Christ-centered? Perhaps, perhaps, for a while, that they could. Yes, they could. It would depend on where they were in their Christian life, but not for long. And not once this had been brought to their attention. Because every step you take, and remember you're moving, you cannot stand still. Religion is not static, not like the sauce in the bottle. It is not. You either go forward or you go back. Every step you take, every conscious decision you make, either brings you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ or takes you away. You do not stand still. All spirituality is in motion. Our whole spiritual life is progress. You cannot avoid that. If you make a decision against Christ, you fall away. If you make a decision for him, you move in his direction. So that you cannot fail to take these steps. And I'll tell you something else. You cannot leap over these steps. You cannot leap up over these steps and participate in Christ and be sanctified and be grand and glorious on a grand scale. There is no grand scale to Christianity. There is no grand scale. You are either holy to the people around you every day or you're not holy at all. You either love the people at Asbury College that you're surrounding every day or you do not have a loving disposition. You cannot love the world. You, 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 you can love the people around you. You can love the people that you know and the people that you're around, but you cannot love the world. I'll give you an example of that, exactly what I'm talking about. I'm going to disguise it in such a way that you cannot guess who I'm talking about. But I once knew a woman, and already I've disguised it. I once knew a woman who was a missionary to Singapore. Her heart bled for Singapore. God save Singapore, the poor Asiatics. But she despised yellow people. I do not exaggerate. Her skin crawled to be around them. She wouldn't go to Chinatown, where Chinese people are. She didn't like Asiatics or inferior race. But her heart bled for Singapore. Now you say, bad woman. Tisk tisk, racial bigot. How could she not see that inconsistency? The blockhead. Well, I'm asking all of us, myself included, to see a great inconsistency. Our hearts burn for the missions, and that's good, that's right. Our hearts burn for the world, likewise good. But they must first begin to burn for one another. And I'll tell you something else. I speak to people who are not kind to the lonely. Well, let me speak now to the lonely. No one to love. No one to love. No one to care about. No one to care about me. The second may be true for stars, but the first is absurd. Uh, just, what's today? Thursday. Huh. Saturday. I was listening to a record. I'd heard it many times, but I'd never listened to the words. It's a lovely tune by Stephen Collins Foster. Uh, in 1862, he wrote a song called No One to Love. Lovely, haunting melody. Um, it's just before he died. He had a sad, a broken, unhappy last couple of years of his life. And he died, I think, 18, 19 months after this song was written. It came out in 1860. It was last really major composition called No One to Love. And the words of it, I, I, was, I was thinking and I was praying about something else, and they penetrated my mind for the first time. And the words are these, the refrain, No one to love, no one to love. Why no one to love? What have you done in this beautiful world that you sigh of no one to love? Well, that's true of all of you. Some of you are lonely, and some of you are downcast, and some of you feel a real malaise and a real tension. I've sensed this, no question. In class, some of my friends in the dormitory talking to people, well, you could begin to break out of it. And it's not all your fault. It may not even be primarily your fault. But you can begin to break out of it by exhibiting what you would like to experience. It's kind of the reverse of the golden rule. It is the golden rule. <laughs> it's the reverse of the way you usually think of it, though. If you do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, they will. That's what I mean by reverse. It's circular. Now, there's a last little point I want to make, and I hadn't planned to. 
I was leaving it with the Lord, and, and I, I don't say that as a joke. Uh, if I had time, I would, and I do, so I will. <laughs> and the point is this, that this love that I've been talking about might strike some of you as unnatural and affected, but it's exactly the opposite. It's the most natural thing out of this world. The kind of love I'm talking about is the state of mankind before the fall. And it is the state of mankind after the purging of the Holy Spirit. It is absolutely natural. Tension and selfishness and hurt, that's what's unnatural. Now, I'll tell you something wonderful about Asbury College, and this is the thing I wasn't going to say unless God gave me the time, but he did. What is the most wonderful thing about Asbury College? Okay, why don't you tell us? <laughs> I will tell you. The most wonderful thing about Asbury College is that this is a place where you can be natural the way God the Holy Spirit wants you to be. You can be as loving and as open and as friendly and as unaffected and as unafraid and as undefensive here as you possibly want to be. You can let the Holy Spirit take absolute control of your life and your relationships with other people, and you needn't fear to be laughed at. You needn't fear to be, well, he's crazy, or he's a goody-goody, or he's sentimental, or he's saccharine, or he's maudlin. That's how the world sees it, but the world is blinded by unnaturalness. They don't see us through a glass darkly. They don't see us at all. But here, here in Asbury College, you can be absolutely comfortable. And I owe that, I owe that insight to a, a student. Last a week ago, Friday night, I had uh, a couple in my home, and we were visiting, had dinner, and uh, we were talking about Asbury College. And this girl said, she'll know exactly who it is, she said, I could tell you who it is, but I won't. She said, you know the thing I like about Asbury College? And I said, no, I, you know, we were talking positively, mostly. And she said, um, it's, you, I'm comfortable here. When I was in high school, and I tried to be nice, and I tried to be loving, people laughed at me. But I can be nice here, and people don't laugh at me. I was stunned. Absolutely one of the great insights of the 12 years I've been here. That is exactly right. I thought to her, the Holy Spirit confirmed it. That's the great thing about this place. You can be absolutely nice here. And you know what? People want to be nice. People in the outside world want to be nice. You want to say nice things to one another. You want to love one another. But the reason you don't is you're afraid. Am I not right? You're afraid you'll be rebuffed or rejected. You're afraid that you'll lose the mystery of aloofness. You're afraid that people won't think you're properly disdainful or properly cool or properly laid back. Wrong. Wrong. That's all unnatural worldly thinking. Give into it. Let the Holy Spirit have control of your life. Let him have control of the community. Let there be something like an Asbury family. Now, I admit to you, I admit to you, that in the past, uh, this is hard for me to say, but in the past, I did not see things about Asbury College as clearly as I ought to have. And talking about maudlin, for me to parade my, my bleeding apologies around here for the next two minutes would be maudlin. Now, I'll spare you that. If my attitude towards the college has not changed, uh, or has changed, I should say has changed, then you'll see it. And if you don't see, it's no use by saying anything about it. It would just be a false claim. My attitude about some things has certainly changed, and it has changed for the most positive. And this is the most positive thing of all, that this is a place. Now, I'll close with this. I didn't even plan to, but seeing you all here, I just I think about what this place could be like. What we could all be... Oh, rats. <laughs> Never mind. That's what I deserve. I always... I'll stop. I always resent it when people go over for me. There's a lot of people who have 11 o'clock class. But I do want to sing. I do want to sing one verse of a song. I've asked Dr. Holtz if we could sing one, uh, one verse of a song. Or how, maybe two. I don't necessarily want 
I don't necessarily care if we have a time of commitment. If God wants a time of commitment, then God will have it. But in this service and in the rest of this day and in the rest of your life, do what God wants. And what he wants is for you to love him and for you to love one another.